COVID-19 pandemic is a moving target that's very challenging to fully grasp. Let's talk about some new information I've recently gleaned right here on this special bonus COVID-19 episode of The Nurse Keith Show. Well, hello and welcome to The Nurse Keith Show. I am privileged to have the opportunity to use this platform to educate and inform you, The Nurse Keith Nation, so that you can take any information you find useful and share it with those you care about. I'm committed to regularly publishing episodes related solely to the COVID-19 pandemic. These episodes will always be free of corporate sponsorship and advertising. This is solely about education and information as a public service. Please share far and wide if you feel these episodes are a valuable approach to the virus. And the show notes for this episode will be at nursekeith.com forward slash COVID-19-8. Now, all information in these episodes about COVID-19 reference the most up-to-date information I can access, as well as personal opinions and reactions from yours truly, and any guests I may have on the show. Please note the situation is changing by the moment and any information shared in the course of my COVID-19 episodes may not apply once that data has been updated, expanded upon, or contradicted by the ongoing collection of evidence-based scientific and medical information and discovery. Please also note that nothing shared in the course of any Nurse Keith Coaching COVID-19 podcast is attended for the diagnosis or treatment of the disease, so please consult your healthcare provider, the CDC, the WHO, your local Department of Health, or any other evidence-based resource you trust most. And if you hear or read something I've shared anywhere on any of my channels that you think is erroneous or misguided, please send me an email at keith at nursekeith.com with any evidence or data to back that up so that I can learn and then post a public correction. Thanks for understanding. Stay safe and keep informed. Now, this is, as I said at the top of the show, a moving target. We could also say that we are standing on the shifting sands of a novel virus that has swept the globe. And are you confused? I'm confused. There's so much to be confused about. And at the same time, we're all going through so much psychologically, financially, emotionally, spiritually in our relationships. It's disrupted everything in our lives pretty much, hasn't it? And it's really hard to stay focused when you're worried about yourself worried about your patients, worried about your friends, your loved ones, your colleagues, and worried about just everybody out there in the world who is suffering. We've got growing numbers of infections in the developing world and in many nations around the world that do not have robust public health and medical and healthcare infrastructures. And that's where a lot of my worry comes in. You know, of course, there's lots of suffering here in the United States, and there's plenty to go around. And I worry about the homeless, the undocumented, people on the streets of India, people on the streets of cities in South America and Eastern Europe and Asia, and the list goes on and on. So 
One thing I just want to say before we get into some of the science is that we have to be careful and be gentle with ourselves and others. These are difficult times and we need to cut ourselves and other people lots of slack. We need to be kind. We need to be compassionate. We need to feel deep, deep empathy and also feel and express gratitude for ourselves, for just surviving day to day, for the people around us, for everything they're doing, and for everyone out there who's working so hard in the face of the virus. And that includes grocery store workers, mail carriers, researchers, nurses, doctors, surgeons, the people who clean hospitals, the people who work in gas stations and convenience stores, or wherever you go where people are public facing or doing important work out there, say thank you, express your gratitude, because you know, we're all in this together, folks, and we all need to stick together and thank each other for the small and big things that we are all doing to get through. Anyway, let's move on to some of the information I have to share with you here. I have shared a little bit on a previous episode about the nomenclature of the disease, but I want to reiterate it here on this episode because I'm going to share a few things that might sound a little confusing if you don't remember these particular pieces. Now, in terms of the nomenclature of this disease. Official names have been announced for the virus responsible for COVID-19, previously known as 2019 novel coronavirus and the disease it causes. The coronavirus disease itself is called COVID-19 and we're seeing that everywhere now, right? Now, the virus itself is called Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2, which is written SARS, capital S-A-R-S, dash, capital C, little o, capital V, dash, 2. So I just wanted to make sure we talked about SARS-CoV-2, which is sometimes referred to simply as CoV-2, and the disease itself, which is COVID-19. So just recently, I had the pleasure and privilege of speaking to a very well-known scientist here in the United States who is deeply embedded in the COVID-19 research happening all around the world, especially here in the U.S. And he shared some information with me in order for me to be able to pass it on to you. I took some notes. He actually edited those notes for me so that I could make sure I was giving this information to you straight and correctly. So here's a little bit from our conversation. So there is a significant, of course, amount of effort being undertaken by both pharma and academic researchers to determine if known approved drugs can be repurposed as anti-coronavirus treatments for the current COVID-19 pandemic. So in this regard, thousands of drugs that are approved for diseases as varied as diabetes or cancer are being screened to see if they happen to have antiviral activity against COVID-2. An example of one such drug is, as you've heard on the news, hydroxychloroquine, a drug that's approved for the treatment of malaria, and it appears to have some activity against COVID-2. The big question here is whether hydroxychloroquine has sufficient efficacy against COVID-2 relative to its known side effects. Stay tuned for developments in that particular arena. 
So any of these drugs that are being tested right now are screened in cultures of human cells to first determine if they can inhibit the ability of COVID-2 to bind or propagate in human cells. And if such drugs show promise in cell cultures, their activity is then determined in animal models of coronavirus infection. Ferrets are being used for testing potential COVID treatments because it's been found that the SARS-CoV-2 virus replicates well in ferrets and cats, actually. Sorry, George the cat, but poorly in most other mammals. So drugs that look promising in the ferret animal model are then studied for their potential safety in humans and those that appear both efficacious and safe, that is important, efficacious and safe, are then potential candidates for human clinical trials. There are a number of repurposed drugs currently undergoing clinical trials in COVID-19 patients. So some of these drugs are being chosen because they're known antivirals, such as the influenza drug favipiravir, which is in clinical trials for COVID-19, and some HIV drugs like Kaletra, for instance, which has been in the news lately. I remember Kaletra when it first came out, I think in the 90s, when I was working in the HIV AIDS world back in Massachusetts. And at that point, we were phenotyping and genotyping each HIV patient's blood for mutations and then tailoring their treatment accordingly. And I remember Kaletra coming out sometime around that period. So other drugs are chosen because they have a molecular similarity to chloroquine or chloroquine-like compounds. And yet other drugs are identified that work in the host human cell and prevent the host from destroying itself. An example of this would be potent anti-inflammatory drugs that attempt to block the cytokine storm that often happens late in the COVID-19 disease process as the immune system goes so far to kill the virus and winds up killing its own cells and organs. So I'll try to put a few good evidence-based articles in the show notes about cytokine storm so that you can read more about it if you'd like to understand how that process happens as the immune system tries to kill the virus and then starts to attack the rest of the body. So some scientists out there who are experts at molecular modeling, which is basically digital simulation of drugs binding to proteins, they're looking for drugs that could prevent the binding of the COVID-2 virus to human cells by binding to the coronavirus spike protein, the protein that latches onto the outside of human cells in the lung and other tissues. Other drugs are designed to interfere with the ability of the virus to multiply once it's inside cells. And the holy grail here, this is what my scientist friend explained, the holy grail would be to identify an anti-coronavirus drug that can prevent viral infections regardless of the strain of the coronavirus. That would be SARS-CoV-1, SARS-CoV-2, MERS-CoV, or whether the virus undergoes spontaneous mutation. So if they can find a drug that works against all of these different coronavirus strains and can also protect against any mutations that happen, that would be absolutely fantastic. Will that happen? We sure hope so. Is it absolutely going to happen? 
No, but we can definitely hope against hope that perhaps a drug can be created that will be able to have that level of efficacy against all coronavirus strains that are out there. So the virus that causes COVID-19 is a coronavirus, as most of us know now, and it belongs to a subset of coronaviruses that cause sudden acute respiratory syndrome, known as SARS, a dangerous respiratory condition that can lead to dramatic and sudden pulmonary failure. Now, the other approach that we've been hearing about lately, of course, is the development of vaccines, and there is active vaccine development going on against COVID-2, and there are indeed several vaccines in clinical trials. We heard a number of weeks ago about the very first vaccine being given to the very first patient, and I believe now that there are more than one going on, and we can hope that this will bear fruit. However, Please understand, and I've been reminding myself when I get excited, that actually bringing a vaccine to market is going to take some time because we need to check for safety and we also have to check for efficacy and it has to go through a number of phases of a clinical trial to make sure we have a good safety record so that we know humans can actually get it and the side effects are not going to be too bad and that it's actually going to be efficacious enough against COVID-19. So some people are saying that we might have a usable vaccine sometime in 2021, possibly by the end of 2021. So don't hold your breath. It could be another year. It could be another year and a half. And I'm recording this episode on April 20th, 2020. So it's going to be a while, folks. So the drugs are probably what we're going to have to use first. Absolutely. Not just probably, absolutely, because the vaccine is going to take a while. Now, let's talk a little about testing. I was listening to one of my favorite coronavirus COVID-19 podcasts, and it's called America Dissected Coronavirus. And the episode, which I will link in the show notes, is called Testing 123 why we still need testing. Now, some people, some scientists and medical folks out there might disagree with some of this, but there's plenty of information and ideas and opinions being bandied about. And I just want to share what I learned from this particular podcast episode that you can listen to by clicking a link in the show notes. So, one thing the doctors on this particular episode were saying is that we need to know who has the virus, whether they're symptomatic or not. And that is a problem because we have not been able to test that many people in the United States who are not symptomatic because we've been focusing on the people with symptoms because we just have not had enough tests to go around. So. This is a problem in many people's eyes, including mine. And the only way, according to these particular doctors on the podcast episode, that we can isolate the virus is to know who has it and then isolate those people so that we can do contact tracing and know every single person within reason with whom that person has had contact since they were sick or contracted the virus. This would result in what some people recall to as precision social distancing. So if people are walking around unwittingly spreading the virus, 
everyone has to social distance, right? Because we're not testing enough people to know who's walking down the street or at Trader Joe's or wherever who has the virus and no symptoms because we're not testing those people, only the people who actually have symptoms. So myself and a lot of other people have been saying for many weeks that we need to not just test those who have bad symptoms. We need to test anyone out there in 21st century America. But is that practical? Probably not. Is it doable? Hmm, Many people would argue that it actually isn't even doable. But, you know, we started with tests from the CDC that were faulty after the United States rejected the German tests being offered by the WHO. And we've been behind the eight ball ever since when it comes to testing. And you may work or live in a place where people who are even very heavily symptomatic cannot get tested. I know a few people around the United States who have not been able to get tested, even though they are very, very, very sick. And that to me, my friends is quite distressing. So one of the questions here is, can we trust positive tests? And while a false positive can lead to quarantine of an individual, and yes, that is inconvenient, especially if that person is actually negative, many people contend, and I would tend to agree that it's a better scenario quarantining people who have a false positive because we don't know who's a carrier or not. So yes, a false positive is an issue but is not a big issue as compared to false negatives. So false negatives are definitely more problematic and dangerous than false positives, and the percentage of false negatives is said to be fairly high. According to an article in Slate.com, which I will reference in the show notes, here's a quote. No one is certain exactly how many tests are spitting back false negatives. One preprint paper relying on biological specimens from 213 patients in China suggested a false negative rate as high as 30%. Now, we don't know how accurate that is, but we do know that there are a significant number of false positives. In terms of the data from China, how much can we trust it? It's very difficult to say. Now, let me continue here. In a New York Times op-ed, Harlan M. Krumholtz, director of the Yale New Haven Hospital Center for Outcomes Research and Evaluation, wrote, quote, Some of my colleagues, experts in laboratory medicine, expressed concerns the false negative rate in this country could be even higher than 30%, unquote. So, According to Slate, patients have received suspicious results suggesting they don't have the coronavirus infection despite having symptoms that are completely consistent with what we know about the virus, including high temperatures and the telltale dry cough. Perhaps the most notable example of a false negative is Li Wenliang, an ophthalmologist in Wuhan, China, who brought COVID-19 to international attention. Li died of the virus, but only after he repeatedly tested negative for the disease. So we know that no test is perfect. Even the latest rapid influenza test, for example, has a false negative rate around 20%. So this is definitely an issue and it's being talked about widely because this is causing us a lot of issues, especially here in the United States. And if you're worried, I don't blame you because false negatives definitely give people a false sense of comfort 
And then they can go on walking around the community, infecting other people, including their family members, friends, and colleagues, because that false negative gives them the confidence that they are a-okay. So something we want to talk about in terms of tests, and this was very helpful information that I gleaned from this podcast episode that I will reference in the show notes, is about sensitivity and specificity. Now, let me explain what I've learned because I was learning as I went, and I want to try to explain to you what I've gleaned from this. So sensitivity of tests is the ability of the test to find the presence of the virus accurately in as many cases as possible. Our current tests are looking for the viral RNA that tells us the patient has it in their blood. So again, sensitivity measures how often a test correctly generates a positive result for people who have the condition that we're testing for. This is also known as, quote unquote, the true positive rate. A test that's highly sensitive will flag almost everyone who has the disease and not generate many false negative results. Example, a test with 90% sensitivity will correctly return a positive result for 90% of people who have the disease, but return a negative result, a false negative, for 10% of the people who have the disease and should have tested positive. See what I mean there? And then if we move on to specificity, specificity measures a test's ability to correctly generate a negative result for people who don't have the condition that's being tested for, this is known as a true negative rate. A high specificity test will correctly rule out almost everyone who doesn't have the disease and won't generate many false positive results. An example of this would be a test with 90% specificity will correctly return a negative result for 90% of people who don't have the disease, but will return a positive result, a false positive, for only 10% of the people who don't have the disease and should have tested negative. I will put this in the show notes so you can read along so that you can get this into your head because it took me a few times reading it to really grasp what this means. And now let's talk about different types of tests. We have serologic tests, which means we're looking for antibodies, proteins in your blood that show us that you've had the virus at some point in the past and may still have it or not. This can also have false positives and negatives, but the serologic test, the antibody test, is now being offered in some places in the United States. Now, the other tests we're doing, the PCR tests, is testing for the presence of the virus itself. So in the podcast episode, again, they said, what if we did both tests on each person we were testing? That means if we combine the tests, the serology test for antibodies and the PCR test for the actual virus, sensitivity would go up since anything that comes back positive is considered a real positive. Are you confused? Yes, you probably are. I am too. I will have all of this in the show notes so that you can go back and read through it and then send me any questions you have and I can try to get you answers. Now, before we wrap up, I just wanted to mention a couple things that would be of interest to you 
nurses and healthcare professionals that you just might want to know about. This has to do with you being educated and informed and also getting some helpful hints out there that might just be a useful to you or some of your colleagues. Now, I have been tapped to participate in a webinar series on self-care and wellness for nurses during the COVID-19 pandemic. This is an eight webinar series being offered by Elite, and they are Elite Healthcare, one of the leading CEU providers for nurses and other healthcare professionals. Now, this webinar series is very special because it is free. There are eight webinars on various aspects of self-care and wellness and just looking after yourself during this pandemic. And each one will offer you one CEU, one CEU hour at no charge. And there will be a link in the show notes to sign up. Some of the webinars, including my first one, will already have happened by the time you hear this episode. But you can go back, I hope, listen to those because they'll be recorded and offered at the Elite Healthcare website, and you'll be able to take part after the fact, take the post-test, and receive your free CEUs. Elite has tapped myself, my friend Dr. Renee Thompson, my good friend Tiffany Swedeen, a ICU nurse in Seattle, and several other high-profile professionals who will help guide you through some excellent resources and strategies for taking care of yourself during this very difficult moment in all of our lives. So watch for that. Also watch for it on all of my social media channels and in my newsletters from nursekeith.com. Now, there are also some deals for healthcare professionals happening out there. There are several different ones being offered. You might know that Airbnb is offering some free places to stay for nurses and healthcare professionals who are traveling around the country to help with the surge in various areas around the United States. That is wonderful. And you can go to Airbnb to find that. Now, I also heard from another organization that is publishing a tracker that aggregates deals and offers for nurses fighting COVID-19. Their goal is to help nurses find housing, childcare, and other essentials, especially if they're working away from home. So I have a link to that tracker in the show notes so that you can see if any of that information will be helpful to you. And anything else I find that might be of use, I will put in the show notes. And please also watch my social media feeds because I will be putting it all there as well. And speaking of my social media feeds, I'm also just posting the latest evidence-based information, some good articles and op-eds that I find from the New York Times and elsewhere. So head over to my social media if you want to see what I'm posting. Also over on Instagram, I am just posting some nice pictures of George the Cat. If you go to my Instagram stories, there will be some Instagram lives that will be archived there for short periods of time so that you can just be entertained. Also just check in with me and check in with George and just get a little chuckle here and there as well. And in my Instagram feed, there's also lots of great evidence-based information for you to check out if you care to. 
So there you have it. Thanks for listening to this special COVID-19 bonus episode of the Nurse Keith Show. There will be many more to come. And remember, the show notes will be at nursekeith.com forward slash COVID-19-8. I hope you feel uplifted and empowered and informed by this episode and not too confused. And I encourage you to take inspired action every day to educate, inform, and calm your friends, family, loved ones, colleagues, and members of your wider community. The Nurse Keith Show is adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting, who's kindly producing these special COVID-19 updates free of charge to me as a public service to you. And Mark Capispeason is our stalwart social media ringmaster who's helping me keep the word getting out there by spreading it via our many online platforms. My deep gratitude to Rob and Mark for their very hard work behind the scenes here at the Nurse Keith Show. Stay safe, stay informed, be the nurse who does the right thing in the face of COVID-19. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico. Thank you.